100 years after some women won the vote, the People's History Museum, home of ideas worth fighting for, explores how far we've come in the fight for representation and how far we have to go. I'm Helen Antrobus, and join me as, episode by episode, I look at some of the incredible objects and stories in Represent, Voices 100 Years On. The suffrage campaigners were no stranger to protest. From the militant suffragettes to the peaceful, law-abiding suffragists, they developed their own styles. From marching and rallies such as the NUWSS mass pilgrimage across the country to London in 1913, to their window smashing and the militant processions of the WSPU. The campaigners soon knew that if they could not be in the House of Commons, their presence on the streets and in the public spaces of the country would gain attention to their cause. There are other ways that campaigners managed to do this as well, and in 1911, the Women's Freedom League and the WSPU organised a mass boycott of the census, where women banded together and hid, claiming if they weren't represented in Parliament, they would not be officially represented on the census. Emily Wilding Davison, most famously, was found hiding in a cupboard in Parliament on the night of the census. Now, if you go to Parliament today, it's not actually that accessible, but the cupboard now has a plaque in it dedicated to Emily Wilding Davison and what she did on the night of the protest. Um, and the plaque was actually put in by Tony Benn as well. And um, so if you are ever in Parliament, do try and sneak in and see it. The Women's Freedom League excelled at these acts of protest. In 1909, Muriel Matters, which is a fantastic name, commandeered an airship and scattered leaflets with the all-important message, votes for women across the city of London. Now, going back to the census for a moment, this is exceptionally important because it means that women who can't afford to or can't sacrifice so much as to go to jail or to engage in militant action are finally able to add their voice or at least hide their voice in this method of protest. The census documents are actually now available online to look at and through this we can see how many women identified as parts of the suffrage movement, whether it's a suffragist or a suffragette. But through this one action of not signing or graffiti in a census, they put themselves in the history of the movement. Today, activists and campaigners still believe in the power of using voice over vote, and in this episode, I'm going to look at some campaigns and tactics from 100 years ago and from now. Some of them are chillingly similar. Now, as we walk round the exhibition, first we come to the Mud March newspaper. When we talk about suffrage campaigning, we often remember the militant actions of the WSPU. And this isn't a coincidence. Emmeline Pankhurst and her suffragettes knew how to gain the attentions of the press. And because their tactics often involved breaking the law, they were designed to do just that, to make headline news. Their arrests, their window smashings, bombing post boxes, all of these things ended up in their members and their organisers going to prison. Even when the protesters were in prison, they still managed to make the news. For example, when women such as Mary Lee and Selena Martin went to prison in 1909, the rest of the WSPU staged a protest outside the jail, campaigning against the way that working women were treated in prison. So inside and out, these women knew how to make a fuss and how to get themselves noticed. The Women's Freedom League were actually very similar and employed equally headline-grabbing tactics. The National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the NUWSS, however, despite being the biggest suffrage organisation in the country and women from as far flung as Shetland would come to London to join their marches, 
were often not as well known, or at least their tactics weren't as well known. But this is different when it comes to the Mud March. Now, this is a newspaper illustration and it shows the suffragists on the Mud March of 1907. The women went on a march across London and the weather was so horrific. That's how it got its title. And a lot of the women were described as arriving at Hyde Park, which was their final destination, with mud up to their knees and covering their clothes. Despite looking a bit grubby at the end of this, the women are named as well-mannered and well-bannered. And despite the terrible weather conditions on the march, it did set the precedent for future processions and marches for future campaigns, including the famous Women's Sunday in 1908. You might remember that from a couple of episodes ago, because it's the first march and it's the first protest that the Manchester WSPU banner that is on display and represent at the moment went on. In the press, these women were commended for their sober and organised approach to the march. And what's quite interesting about these suffragist and suffragette marches is that in some newspapers, particularly in the suffrage journals and the suffrage note and the suffrage notices which are distributed to the women, gives a list of instructions on how these women should behave and how they should dress. What's really interesting about this is there's quite some interesting ones such as make sure you eat before the march because you might not get a chance on the way and make sure you don't walk ahead of your faction because you don't want to bump into anyone. But the one that always stands out to me is to always dress very feminine, to wear your best clothes, to have flowers in your hat. And this was the way that these suffrage campaigners challenged the perception that they were just trying to take on masculine roles. It really shows that in a lot of anti-suffrage propaganda, that women were just trying to be men and that they they were just trying to wear the trousers. And these marches were demonstrating that these women weren't trying to get the vote as men and on the terms of men voting for the same, necessarily the same things as men, but they were voting as women and for women. The suffrage campaigners realised very early on that these marches were powerful because of the united voices coming together and shouting for the same thing, something that campaigners still do today and still did then. Now, moving backwards a little bit, is another banner in the exhibition and it looks extremely different from the WSPU banner that's just round the corner in its purple, white and green splendour. This is the Jarrow banner from 1936. Now it's actually in a frame because for a long time it sat on the wall of an office and it is in terrible condition despite all the best efforts of our conservators. The banner is long and has no decoration on it whatsoever. The suffrage campaigners were not the only ones who recognised that marching, a relatively peaceful form of protest, could make an impact of social and political change. Mass marches, such as the suffragist pilgrimage, were proven to capture the attentions of the British press as well. Organised march became popular during the Great Depression in the early 1930s, and these became known as hunger marches, and often came from poor and deprived areas of high employment, and they marched on the capital en masse. In fact, the Jarrow March in 1936 is probably the most famous of these marches. After the collapse of Jarrow's shipyard in 1936, 200 men, most of them war veterans, marched from the town alongside their MP. It's someone who we've met before. It's Ellen Wilkinson. Now, after being voted out of Parliament, she comes back later on as the MP for Jarrow, and she throws herself behind these men, supporting them every step of the way, despite her illnesses. 
Now moving on from the Mud March newspaper, we can see one of the banners that was unfurled as they did this march. It's very different from the other banners in our collection, even from the banners displayed in this exhibition. The Jarrow banner is hand-painted and it only says the title of the march in very crudely black painted letters. It really demonstrates the importance of these marches to the people, that even if you couldn't afford to commission a high-profile banner as the WSP you could before them, you were still able to make your statement and use your voice together. Now, when Ellen Wilkinson goes to the Labour Party conference that year, which coincides with the march, she speaks out for the men. And she says very boldly when it's suggested that another report is carried out in Jarrow, is there not one pore of the working man's body that has not already been card indexed? She was demanding action. Even though the march officially failed, they weren't granted access to the Prime Minister and their petition fell flat. What it did was highlight to the rest of the country how these people were living. Banners, signs, paintings and placards have always been used in protests. We've seen it in the suffrage campaigners, we've seen it with the Jarrow marches, and we can even see it today. In January 2017, women across the world marched in solidarity with the women protesting the inauguration of Donald Trump as president in the United States of America. Trump had made misogynistic and racist comments prior to his presidential campaign and visited the UK in July 2018, launching another wave of protests against him. But it's the January 2017 protest that I'm going to talk about today, because in the corner of Represent, hanging from the ceiling, high up for all to see, as if they're being marched once more, are the placards from the Manchester March against Trump. There's a fantastic story behind these placards. After the march happened on the Monday morning, People's History Museum sent out several social media posts requesting that people send them their placards for our collection. The museum is still dedicated to contemporary collecting and strives to collect from most major protests across the country. Within hours, the tweets had been shared hundreds and hundreds of times. And that afternoon, we received a call from the organiser of the Manchester Women's March, who said that many of the placards had been left in Albert Square here in Manchester, and that she would bring some of them to the museum. Now, those of you that are familiar with the city of Manchester, you'll know that it likes to rain quite a lot. And that day was one of the rainiest I have ever seen here in the city. But the Women's March Manchester group persevered, and fighting through the stormy weather, they managed to bring us armfuls and armfuls of the placards that had been taken on the march. We had to do some serious conservation work on them, for one, drying them out, and some of them sadly did perish from the rain. But the ones that have survived have been hung up in the exhibition space, reminding everyone that solidarity, not just nationally but internationally, still goes on and still works. The placards range from very hopeful, inspiring messages, others referring to Trump's past behaviour, including one of Trump dressed as a caveman, dragging a woman by her hair back to the cave, referring to the fact that Trump takes us back in the fight for women's rights and for gender equality. When you visit Represent, make sure you get a good look at these placards because they're absolutely fantastic. But also take the opportunity while you're in the space to go to our placard making interactive. Make one of your own. You can take it away or you can hang it up in the exhibition for all to see what you're fighting for. Everything we've seen so far in the voice section of Represent shows that battles are never won with one voice alone. Coming together in protest, not only achieved the much needed attention for the fight for women's suffrage, 
but it also gave their campaign more weight and more support. The same thing happens today. From Jarrow to the Women's Marches of 2017, solidarity and protest shows strength, unity and hope for activists and campaigners. But how long can you campaign peacefully before something has to change? And if we take inspiration from the law-abiding suffragists, what lessons should we learn from the militant suffragettes? Join me in the next episode where I ask one of the most important questions in Represent. If the law is wrong, should you break it?